Welcome to On DoD on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu. Glad you're with us. And on the program this time, a deep dive on other transaction agreements in DoD. As we've discussed before, the department's use of OTAs has just skyrocketed over the past few years. According to the Federal Procurement Data System, in 2016, DOD signed 342 OTAs, worth just over $1.4 billion. That was really the first year after Congress expanded DOD's authority to use those agreements. Fast forward to 2020, and it's more than 3,200 OTAs, worth more than $16 billion. And whatever one thinks of OTAs, it's worth understanding how they work. There are relatively few explicit rules for how the department can use OTAs, but there are some, and it's worth understanding those, too. So for the full hour this week, we're joined by one of DOD's foremost experts on other transaction authority. Hallie Balkin is a government procurement attorney who currently works at Defense Acquisition University, where she's the learning director for other transactions. She's also currently working with the Office of the Secretary of Defense on the latest update to DOD's other transactions guide. Hallie, welcome, and thanks for doing this. And I definitely want to use a, a good deal of our time today on the show to to have you demystify the whole OTA process for us a little bit. But I want to start with what DAU specifically is doing and, and how you're helping the acquisition workforce navigate their way through OTAs, because this is new for a lot of them as well. We were, we were talking a bit off the air earlier that a few years ago, this was really a boutique specialized area where there was really kind of just one army contracting office that was the experts at this. The explosion in, in the use just dollar figure wise and, and how widely OTs have been used in more recent years definitely suggests this is becoming a phenomenon that goes way beyond one contracting office. So talk a bit about some of the demand signal that you have seen for OT instruction, OT mentoring at DAU and how you've responded to that recently. Yeah, absolutely, Jared. So when I first came to DAU, it was kind of in the midst of when OTs were really ramping up across the DOD and the federal government at large. And moving to DAU really presented an opportunity for me personally to get that message out because I had attended so many different workshops, seminars, meetings, where there was just so much bad information being promulgated throughout um, industry and the government. And it really was uh, an exciting opportunity to get in a place where I could have an impact. So in the middle of the pandemic, <laughs> when I moved to DAU, it was really exciting to be part of such a modern learning platform. I mean, we really tried to be pandemic proof in the sense that our learning opportunities were agnostic regardless of the platform available. So whereas we had a, you know, traditionally, maybe there was a class with 26 seats in it. Now we could reach 400, 500 learners all at once. So we initiated these OTA Today webinar series. We started off really basic. What are the foundational kind of what you need to know ins and outs about other transaction authority? And then from there, we started getting more in depth. We went through intellectual property rights and data rights, um, agreements officers, the person actually warranted to award one of these OTs. What do they need to know? What are some lessons learned? And from there, it just really exploded into more niche needs, um, like cost type OTs. What do you do if they're not fixed price deliverables in your contract? Uh, Aside from that, we also offer OT coaching. From a lot of these webinars and training opportunities that we provide, we'll have specific customers say, hey, if we're working on this requirement, it might be right for an OT. What do you think? Or a customer in the middle that says, 
we are in the middle of executing an OT and we're hitting this roadblock. Do you have any lessons learned you can provide for us? And since we have so much experience working with so many different offices, federal government wide, we do have a lot of lessons learned. We have a lot of OTA coaching aspects, um, best practices, ideas that we can kind of bounce off in real time and really integrate with that team. Um, aside from that, we also developed a two-day simulated OTA workshop where we have this hypothetical requirement and we actually get groups together and have them work through and grapple through these issues that we throw, frequent issues that we see come up and and obstacles and aspects of an OT and challenges that will most likely come up. That way the team can actually get some hands-on experience working through those challenges. Let me pull that thread a little bit. What are some of those frequent issues that come up in those sessions with those hypotheticals? Oh, goodness gracious. <laughs> Getting everyone on the right page uh, prior to executing is one of those challenges that we keep seeing rear its ugly head. A lot of times folks are relying on this information that might not be accurate or might be outdated. So if you don't have your program attorney and your finance person and the actual requirements holder working on the same page with one another to make sure that the requirement is going to be executed in a way that everyone agrees to. We see those challenges come up later where someone, you know, some sort of POC won't sign a document because they didn't agree with either the strategy or the type of funding associated with the effort. Or maybe there's some sort of misconception about the legal authority. So having those upfront conversations with the stakeholders up front is absolutely a best practice that we recommend uh, before even engaging in any sort of market intelligence or advertising for a certain requirement. And, and you've worked around defense contracting for quite a while before OTs really burst onto the scene. How unique is everything that you just mentioned to the OT space? Uh, yes, I've been I've been around for about 11 years and I typically was working on a traditional FAR-based procurement. I was a program attorney for the Navy for quite some time and these kind of notions about making sure the right funding is available and and allocable and appropriate and that the requirement is well established enough to actually get into some sort of solicitation or white paper need. It's not it's not new to the federal acquisition space, but with OTA comes a whole new set of challenges because we don't have the FAR, the DFARs, and the associated agency supplements to kind of guide what the rule set is. It's not as specific. And I think that's purposefully done. Um, when Congress gave us this authority, they didn't want us to have a very bureaucratic, very go follow this type of template mindset, because in order to obtain the technology that we really need, we need to think outside the box. We need to be creative. We shouldn't be following a template or do business as usual. And that's how we are going to continue to attract these non-traditional vendors and show that, hey, even though we're the federal government, we don't have to do business as usual. Um, I want to go back to something you said toward the beginning of the conversation, which was that when you when you first came to DAU, you observed that there was just a lot of misinformation about OTs. So let's do some myth busting. What, what, what are the some some of the most common ones, both then and now, that you encountered that you'd feel like really needed to be corrected? Oh gosh, we we don't have that much time, but I'll, huh. <laughs> I'll give you a few of them. Um, right now, the one I'm seeing the most, I think, is the most frustrating, is that when we have a properly executed, successfully competed and completed prototype agreement. So the prototype has been awarded, executed, ready to move into production, that there has to be some sort of justification to move forward, some sort of J&A. 
I keep hearing, and even from um, attorneys in the in the federal government, that this is considered a sole source follow-on to go into production, and that's absolutely not the case. We have statutory authority to move into a direct award, which is very different from a sole source award, which is a FAR-based concept that requires a whole different set of things. Um, on the contrary, a follow-on direct production award following a successfully completed, completed prototype award is just that. It is a direct award. And we don't need to go through this bureaucratic process to get all of these approvals to move into production. And on the contrapositive to that, that is contrary to what we should be doing. If we have a prototype ready to go and we follow the rules and we've done the right thing and we're transparent and we've act acted ethically, that's the perfect time to move into production. That's what we should be doing in order to keep up with technology remaining relevant. Another myth that we've seen a bunch being promulgated over and over is that OTs cannot be protested. Uh, contrary to that, we are seeing GAO and the Court of Federal Claims exert jurisdiction over bid protests alleging uh, improper use of OTA, but in a different manner. GAO is specifically stated that it's not going to go through our evaluation documents and see if all of our strengths, significant weaknesses, weaknesses, deficiencies, again, those are all FAR-based terms, uh, they're not going to go through that sort of source selection, if you will, to see if we evaluate it correctly. Rather, they're going to look at, did you use the authority appropriately? Are you using a an OT arrangement to circumvent the FAR? Or are you kind of cherry picking what you want from the FAR and calling it another transaction? Or are you going into production before the prototype has been successfully completed? Or are you going out of scope? That really is kind of the scope that we're seeing GAO look at right now. Uh, but it's certainly not a risk-free, litigative risk-free contract. Yeah, when, when GAO has looked at OTs, ha has the office or the Court of Federal Claims really given us much insight into why they've taken a relatively lighter touch? I mean, do, do, do you get the sense from those decisions that they're interpreting the statute as Congress wanting them to take a lighter touch in the protest process and, and let agencies kind of craft these to be as agile as possible? Do we know why they've, they've treated them kind of differently than FAR-based procurement so far? Well, I would never impose my opinion <laughs> for that of GAOs and, and what their mindset sure. is. But it does, it does seem that the term procurement contract is a term of art that means FAR-based. The federal acquisition regulation, those sets of rules and the DFARs, if we're talking defense contracts, rule the contract. A procurement contract is not an OT. And the rules for what GAO looks at in terms of a bid protest is specific to procurement contracts. Now, they deviated a little bit from that in the Oracle protest, uh, May of 2018, in terms of looking at the contract vehicle to see if OTA was properly used as Congress wanted us to. Um, and of course, for those of us who have been following OTA protests um, from the get-go, we know that that is one of the kind of the landmark cases where the Army actually had the decision to sustain, the Army lost. But that didn't have to do with how they evaluated or whether the evaluation was proper and reasonable and, and well documented. Um, it rather had to do with a couple other things like moving into the production piece before the prototype was finished, uh, making sure that follow on language stating affirmatively that the government is going to move on into or expects to move into a follow on production vehicle is anticipated. Things like that that we now have as bright line um, kind of rule sets, which there are very few. Those are sort of aspects that GAO has harped on in, in cases since. Yeah. And just to clarify on that piece, it's, so what you're saying is it, it is important when you start 
doing a prototype to specify up front that you anticipate this may end up going into production at some point? And if you don't do that, is it, is it an obstacle to eventually moving into production? Yes, absolutely. So while there are not a lot of finite rule sets, that is one of the finite rules that we have to follow. If we do anticipate moving into a follow-on production award, that does have to be affirmatively stated up front. And if if it's not, this is only for prototype, research OTs have different rules, but for a prototype, the the kind of mindset is create something that hasn't been done on a government system or advance some sort of technology or use it in some sort of widget or technology in a way that hadn't, has not been done before on a government system or network and then move into production. That's kind of the intent of using that prototype um, up front. So to give that kind of notice that that's what we're going through, I think that's why it is one of the bright lines that we do have because it's important for the vendors who are interested in playing with us to know that up front. Because one of the things they need to know is, hey, guys, this might be your only chance to compete on this requirement. There's there's not going to be – there potentially might not be another follow-on competition. This might be your only chance. Exactly. Yep. If it doesn't um, have any kind of issues and if the prototype is actually success- successful – in terms of proof of concept, that would there would be no reason to go back and prototype again. And I just wanted to go back to the myth that you mentioned earlier about some folks in the DoD acquisition community feeling like they needed to do a formal justification and approval before moving on to that production OTA process. As you said, you don't, as long as, as you said, also that you specify that up front, that's an eventual possibility. I just, I just want to make clear to listeners, that's not really a matter of opinion. Congress very clearly wrote that into the statute kind of indicating that, you know, they could have left that out if they wanted you to do, do a JNA, I guess, but they, they very explicitly set out a process for moving from prototype to production. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And I think a lot of the issue with this myth that we keep seeing is that it's it's unusual to to folks who have been in this far-based procurement environment for so long. I mean, some of them, some of my colleagues have been in the field for decades and they've never once executed an OT, let alone heard the acronym until recently. So to now say, okay, this is not a sole source with when everything they're saying in their head is, oh my gosh, this is a sole source. There's no further competition. This is a sole source. Having them take that far hat off, so to speak, has is challenging, I think, because we are creatures of habit. And I will be honest, when I was first introduced to other transaction authority, I felt similarly. <laughs> there were some growing pains. Um, and it wasn't until I really saw the beauty and the utility and the benefit of what could be yielded from this type of arrangement that I really was a true believer in the sense that we don't always have to do business the same as, as usual. Was there one or two programs or prototypes that, that brought you around to that view? Uh, yes. One of the largest programs I worked on uh, before leaving the Department of Navy was the Noble effort. And this was basically to address some of the legacy systems on all of our subs, ships, and ashore sites. And initially, and I've never been on a, a ship before deployed, I never served, but working with so many colleagues um, and teammates that did, I basically learned that when you opened up a system on a on a ship, it was kind of like that DOS blinking green screen. And if you were on a ship 20 years ago, it's, it pretty much looks the same now, <laughs> which is just crazy. So this uh, program, Noble, was an effort to update and integrate all of these systems and families of systems into one smart process that communicated and was um, integrating the most advanced technology so the ships could operate more efficiently. 
in every sense of the word. So that was one of the really amazing programs that I was so fortunate to be a part of and working with some of these non-traditionals, um, some of these companies that had never ever envisioned themselves as traditional defense contractors was pretty eye-opening in terms of, of how they kind of viewed us prior to working these efforts. And then now just how successful the relationship has developed. And another big use of OTAs just last year, which I think you were involved in, was was the procurement of a lot of medical and other supplies as part of Operation Warp Speed. DOD kind of used its OTA acquisition authority to assist largely the Department of Health and Human Services, I think. Can you talk a bit about how OTs were used in that setting and, and how much better that worked than if you were needed to go through a traditional FAR process? Yeah, absolutely. This one was personally very fun for me because I finally got to explain to my family and friends what I did because they kept seeing Operation Warp Speed in the news. And I could say, yes, see, this is what I do. It's relevant. <laughs> it's not just all high level, you know, acronyms that make no sense. Um, the Department of Army utilized other transaction authority, OTA, for its contracts with Pfizer and Moderna to get the vaccines and the therapies moving uh, during the pandemic. And it was really, really interesting to be part of the process. Um, DAU kind of loaned me as a sounding board. I, I served kind of as a, an OTA coach for the team on the uh, in the field. Uh, and DAU also provided several other um, ex experts to provide 100% of their time to Operation Warp Speed. So we really came um, together as a team and the, the folks I worked with were just incredible in terms of answering text messages at 11 p.m. And I mean, they were just on the ground getting it done. My part of the process was much less so, <laughs> but it was fun to be um, kind of the OTA SME on the sidelines, bouncing ideas back and forth, trying to get this done in the most expeditious way while reducing some of the risk, um, litigative risk, uh, programmatic risk, delay risk. So it was, uh, yeah, it was a pretty incredible process to be a part of. I will say that moving forward with Operation Warp Speed and getting these therapies in place and making sure that these vaccines were available moved so much more expeditiously than I think it could have on a FAR-based contract because we were able to move with the speed in which we needed. A lot of times when we're talking traditional FAR-based contract, it can be bureaucratic, as I think we all know. There are rules that have to be followed, and the rules are there for a reason. Uh, but since the other transaction authority statutory authority we have does not require following those rules, and not that you know, we throw all the rules out the window, but we don't have to go through, for instance, cost accounting type rules. We don't go into Pfizer's, you know, their system, the records and audit like we would in a cost accounting covered contract. It's very different. So we can move faster. And I think part of that, right, was that the, the vendor space was a lot of non-traditionals. I mean, people might forget, but at that point, Everybody was scouring the planet for things like N95 masks that may not have been available through the government's usual supply chain. So you needed to buy stuff quickly from people who may not have been on the GSA schedule or did not have any kind of pre-existing relationship with the government. Was that part of it? Yeah, exactly. So in terms of the Buy American Act, it generally does not apply. Uh, there are a few exceptions if the actual subject of what we're buying does. But for the most part, Buy American Act does not apply to, o to OTA. So we are able to really reach a more global kind of industry base of who's available to play with us. 
We're talking with Hallie Balkin, Learning Director for Other Transactions at Defense Acquisition University. She's back with us to talk more about OTAs after a short break. This is On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu. Dell Technologies and VMware are working together to accelerate digital transformation across all facets of government, enabling agencies to efficiently deliver critical services, empower employees with wherever and whenever access to data, and prepare for what's next. VMware's innovative app modernization, multi-cloud, and anywhere workspace software work with Dell Technologies' broad IT infrastructure portfolio, helping agencies achieve secure, consistent operations, and faster time to value. Visit DellTechnologies.com federal to learn about our innovations that move our government forward. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. As we get back into our in-depth conversation on other transaction authority within the Defense Department, our guest this hour is Hallie Balkan. She's the Learning Director for Other Transactions at Defense Acquisition University. And Hallie, let's go back to some of the coaching issues that you talked about a little bit earlier in the conversation. One of the things that you talked about there is that DAU has been able to help procurement activities figure out, is an OT appropriate for my requirement? We haven't talked about this yet, but but what are some of the answers to that fundamental question? And I, I know every procurement is different, but what are some of the key things that you need to look at to decide whether an OT is right? Oh, Jared, if I had a penny for any time, I had a client in the past come in and say, I heard OTA is the best thing since sliced bread. I want to pivot my requirement to OTA. Let's do it. Um, I would probably be on an island somewhere. Um, no, an OTA is, is very specific in terms of what to use it for. So it has to, if we're talking prototype, which is how uh, DOD is engaging in this area for the most part right now, much more heavily than other areas, there has to be something new or different or novel. What are we doing differently? If we are stuck in a sole source contract and it's taking forever and the vendor we're not happy with, we can't just pivot to an OT because we heard it's the new trendy cool thing to do. There has to be something that constitutes a prototype. Now, we do have a little bit of levity with that. And this is one of the kind of more exciting things in in the OTA world. Uh, we never really had a specific definition of what constituted a prototype. And Jared, if you and I are having a cup of coffee and we're talking about the layman kind of understanding what prototype means, we might think of something really cool that's developed in a lab that no one's ever seen before. And that's just not the case. GAO in the Oracle decision in 2018 gave us a kind of quasi two-pronged test um, stating, one, has that technology or effort been deployed in that government system before? And if the answer is no, has the federal government done that sort of thing with the technology or the widget before? And if the answer is no, again, that's a proper prototype classification. So that means if I want to get some sort of new technology for my home PC and I can go to a vendor like BestBuy.com and order it for my computer right now and it's delivered in two days. If that's never been put on, say, a Navy machine that has specific NMCI strict security requirements, if that's never been done before, that same technology that I can readily get on my own as a personal PC owner, I can constitute that as a proper prototype and put it on every single Navy machine to see if it works and then move on to eventual production. So that's huge because I'm sure we all know that staying up with technology and avoiding that 
obsolescence is one of our biggest challenges. So if we can new, if we can now move in this expeditious manner and get the technology as it's being developed before it's outdated and actually keep up or try to keep up with technology, that impact is critical in order for what we should and, and need to continue doing. And that's one of the really cool things about OTA. As you say, that definition of prototype in the OT context is pretty capacious. Is is it is it your sense that that was Congress's intent? Is is it really only just been narrowed by that GAO decision and, and kind of the case law as we go here is all we have to go on to define what a prototype is in the OT setting? Or or, or there clearer rules than my question here kind of suggests? So prior to 2015, Jared, I would absolutely state there was a specific and narrow definition of how we could use OTA. It was for weapons or weapon systems proposed to be acquired or developed by DOD. Now, in the 2015 NDAA, Congress exponentially expanded that definition because now we can prototype for prototype projects directly related to enhancing the mission effectiveness of military personnel and those supporting platforms, systems, components, materials proposed or to be acquired or developed by the DOD or to improve those platforms, systems, components, materials, et cetera. So we saw in 2015 that Congress wanted us to use this definition of prototype for just about anything the government does. Again, keeping in mind, it has to be something new or novel to the specific um, entity involved. So it can't just be something to replace what we have because we don't like it or we're sick of waiting or we want to try something new. Um, Now, if we're going to improve or use that technology that we might already have differently, that could be ripe. I'm trying to figure out how to ask this question because it seems like going with a definition that broad seems like it could be ripe for, if not outright abuse, something that would be perceived as abuse, misusing the OT system when when somebody feels like you really ought to have gone through a traditional FAR-based contract here. I don't know. Maybe you're, you're buying a computer at Best Buy example is, is an example of someone might think that's not a prototype and take it to court over it. Are, are, there, are there cases where someone wants to use an OT and you feel like, yeah, the definition technically allows for this, but we probably shouldn't do it because it's going to invite a lawsuit? Well, I would never avoid looking to requirement just to avoid a lawsuit because we can never control who is going to lodge a protest. We've seen lots of vendors do that facetiously. It's going to happen. Uh, but in terms of competition, you you make a really excellent point in that since FAR Part 6 and the Competition and Contracting Act, SECA, don't apply, what are the rules? And, and is there kind of a ripe environment for abuse? And the answer is, of course, there's always going to be potential and risk of abuse. But Congress gave us this authority. It's our job to make sure we mitigate that abuse and that misuse because we don't want Congress to take it away. And if we do misuse it and take advantage of this opportunity, they could very easily take it away. Um, I always coach that best, best practices we should always employ in every single OT is common sense, transparency, fairness, and acting ethically. If we're afraid that our documentation will not support what we're doing and we're afraid someone might see it, if we do get some sort of bid protest or other litigation, we probably shouldn't be doing it. Um, This is not, you know, carte blanche to act in any way that we see fit because we have this, you know, small rule set all of a sudden. We still are obligating U.S. taxpayer dollars. It's still our job to be good stewards of that taxpayer dollar. And the agreements officer, the person warranted to actually make that award, 
has to know that and they're trained to know that and they act with the same due diligence that they would if it were a far-based procurement. Um, there might be less rules and less templates available. They might have to think a little more critically and outside the box, but it still needs to be fair, consistent with what industry does, um, ethical, and ensure that we abide by the kind of overall notion. If someone were to know what we're doing, would we be nervous? If the answer is yes, then there's, there's a problem there. Hallie Balkin is Learning Director for Other Transactions at Defense Acquisition University. We'll come back and talk more about OTAs after another quick break, get into some of the issues around transparency surrounding other transactions. This is On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbian. Thanks for listening to Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu, talking this week with Hallie Balkin, Learning Director for Other Transactions at Defense Acquisition University, about OTAs and how they're being used throughout the Defense Department. All right, Hallie, this is the part of the conversation where I bring up one of my bugaboos, which is transparency around OTAs. Um, we, we, we talked a bit before off the air about the fact that there is, I would say, increasing transparency in some of this space and less in the consortium-based approach where the public, the media, non-members of the consortium don't always see what's happening inside the consortium, don't always see um, what the requirements are from the government side. Without asking you to criticize or comment on any cons- particular consortium's approach, what's, what's your general advice to OT users in the acquisition community about how to think about being transparent, not just with industry, but with the public as well. Yes, this comes up quite a bit because I've had some customers ask, do I have to provide a debriefing? Um, and the answer is no, there's no debriefing requirement. for So a, either an either successful or unsuccessful vendor submits a white paper, selected or not, do we have to tell them what they did right, what they did wrong? The answer is no, but should we? Maybe. I think it's important to kind of weave this relationship strong enough so that even if a vendor is unsuccessful for the first time, if we tell them, hey, we liked your approach, this is maybe where we could see improvement for the next time, we're going to build that industry base. We're going to build a genuine connection with that vendor where they want to play next time, or maybe they're more encouraged to play. Um, Is that happening all the time? Absolutely not. Um, Sometimes maybe it's not right to provide that sort of transparent feedback following an evaluation. Oftentimes, there are phases uh, for certain requirements. Maybe we have a phase one, phase two. And let's say after phase two, at the culmination of the effort, we do not have a viable prototype. Maybe it's time to initiate a phase three with vendors that submitted interest or white papers in the first phase. So closing that door and saying you were not selected, here's where you could have improved for next time, that sort of closes that door, which I think is why we're seeing some offices opt not to provide that feedback like they otherwise would have to um, in a FAR-based environment where there is a requested debrief. Um, In terms of more transparency for the actual award, we're working on it. There's FPDSNG requirements for modifications and awards, what we're actually awarding, and I I think we're getting there. You brought up consortia. That's a whole other can of worms. Um, you know, we don't have any privity over how these consortia opt to do business and the way that they advertise and the way that they provide some of this information. And you you hit the nail on the head with the DOD IG audit. 
really harping on a lot of what the consortia model is is doing. Um, but there is a requirement in the, I think it was two NDAs ago, that did require the DOD centralize all of our consortia opportunities into one place. Um, and I know the, you know the folks in charge of that are working on that piece as well. But, you know, it's an ever-evolving effort. Um, DIU, Defense Innovation Unit, they do a lot of really neat things with OTs, and they're not a consortia. There's a lot of um, kind of myths around them as well, but there's a lot of ways to approach a requirement. I guess I would just push back slightly on, on the idea that DOD doesn't really have much control over what goes on inside the consortium. That, I mean, that's true after the award is made to the consortium, but the department could, as a policy matter, decide when it's awarding a contract or an OT to a consortium operator or a consortium management company to actually run the thing. Thou shalt provide this level of transparency during any procurements that you do. That That could be done, right? In a perfect world, yes, I'm sure it could be done. But what we don't want to do is get so bureaucratic where now we're telling these entities that are third-party, non-governmental entities how they have to do business because, again, we need them. We need this technology. It's a really delicate balance of how authoritative can we be to meet the needs that the public owes transparency and ethical actions are ensuing versus now acting like the government in the traditional sense that we're going to tell you how you have to do business if you want to work with us. And I think it is a fine line. Now, I don't think con the consortia out there, especially the consortiums that I have specifically worked with, are doing anything bad. I don't think that they are trying to hide the ball. I don't think that there's um, this notion of, you know, closed doors, don't let the government know what we're doing. Um, there's one in particular that I've worked with that advertises all of their opportunities without those opportunities only going to the paying members. So there are, you know, these consortium out there that are doing things a little bit differently. Um, in terms of, you know, saying thou shall, that makes me just a little bit apprehensive because we we don't want to have to create that box around how it has to be done. Now, if there's further DOD IG audit findings or there's other issues that come up, maybe Congress will tell us this is how you have to do it. And I think including that, um, new language about having one centralized list of all the opportunities anticipated to go into the consortia model. I think that is a step in the positive direction of how Congress wants us to to act, but it's certainly not anything more at this point. All right. Well, one more thing before I get off my soapbox on this, and I certainly did not mean to imply that any of the consortium management companies are doing anything intentionally nefarious. I think they're just not being told that they must provide a certain baseline level of transparency. And I just think that as a policy matter, DOD could decide or Congress could decide, and it sounds like Congress is deciding that more information is a public good and require it. We've talked about one of the main limiting factors about where OTs are appropriate and where they're not, which is, is it a prototype or not? There's also three different kind of criteria that, that your program needs to meet at least one of them in order to qualify for being an OT. One of those has been overwhelmingly predominant in use so far, but can you walk us through what each one of those are and how they've been used so far? Yes. So for a prototype project under OTA, one of the following conditions have to be met, at least one of these. So first, that there is a non-traditional defense contractor, and that has a specific meaning. Right now, it means that vendor has received less than $50 million of defense contracts in the prior reporting year. Now that non-traditional non defense contractor has to participate to a significant extent in the prototype project. Now that term significant extent, that is not defined. And it's, in my opinion, not 
purposely defined for a reason. We don't want to have something like a 51% rule or something along those lines, because let's say we're working with Jared, your company, and you provide 1% of the dollar value of an effort. But without that 1%, our widget would not do what it needed to do. It would be you know, futile or it would be completely indifferent to what technology that we are seeking. So without your 1%, we would not be able to meet our prototype needs. So 1% of the dollar value might not seem like a significant extent to some, but again, without your participation and without your work, it wouldn't happen. So that is dependent completely on the requirement. It's contingent on what the effort actually entails. Um, so that is, again, kind of more vague and open to analysis, depending on the team. Uh, the second way for a vendor or a contractor to get an award is that all of the participants or the participant, if it's just a single, is a small business. And that is specifically defined by the Small Business Act in terms of what those rules look like. Uh, the third way to award an OT is to utilize a cost share methodology. So at least one third of the total cost of the prototype project would be paid by the participants other than the government. And that's where we see a lot of the traditional large businesses playing if it's one of those traditional constructs in terms of um, utilizing this authority in that manner. Now, the fourth way I have yet to see be used and I, I'd like it to be used. <laughs> I'm waiting for that unicorn um, and it's a very high bar. So the senior procurement executive basically justifies in writing that it would not be feasible to engage in this sort of innovative business arrangement in any other manner. So a traditional contract or a bailment or a corporate agreement, that sort of thing wouldn't be appropriate. The SPE needs to actually justify that in writing. Uh, I think if Operation Warp Speed wasn't so far along the lines and executed so well by the army um, in the way they went, it, it could have been a, a ripe opportunity to use that. Um, I'm waiting for the next one. I, I really want to see, <laughs> I want to see this used because Congress gave us this authority. We should use it. Um, I do think that maybe it's the unknown, you know, that maybe a senior procurement executive doesn't want to be the bad example. So they're a little bit more apprehensive. Um, but again, Congress gave us this authority. We should use it if it's appropriate. Yeah, I'm trying to think of like a hypothetical where that unicorn might make sense. Because if if you don't qualify for the non-traditional venue, that there are other ways for DOD to buy things relatively quickly from a traditional defense contractor. So do you have do you have some sense of what that that unicorn would look like and why you would want to want to use that authority? Oh gosh. Well maybe I'm gonna give some traditional vendors some ideas. Huh. Don't do this. <laughs> um I mean if we had a if, if, if a commercial vendor who is deemed traditional, so more than $50 million of defense dollars in the prior reporting year, let's say they came up with this incredible technology that would fix everything wrong with, I'll make a make-believe fighter pilot, the F214. Let's say the F214 has all these problems and a traditional vendor comes up with a way to fix it all, but they don't want to play under a FAR-based construct for whatever reason, you know. There's a plethora of reasons they can decide they don't want a FAR-based contract. I mean, that might be a ripe area for us to say, we desperately need this technology to fix our planes. But if we don't work with this vendor in this non-traditional way, we're not going to get it. So maybe that would be an opportunity to move forward. Now, I don't want anyone listening to see, take this and say, all right, you're going to start strong arming your government clients <laughs> by saying you're only going to work OTA because that's not the way we collaborate and do business. Um but we do want to emulate the best 
practices of the commercial market. So if we need to make sure we're staying abreast of the best technology and the most updated and advanced technology, and we just can't wait two years for traditional FAR-based procurement, because at that point, the technology will most likely be obsolete. Maybe this is a way to do it. Just a quick point of clarification on that. If you get that senior procurement executive sign off, does that also get you out of the need for the thing to be a prototype or do you still need to qualify for that prototype definition also? Yeah. So these are all the four conditions that we talked about. That is specifically for a prototype project. So that would still need to constitute a a prototype. And it makes sense if we have technology that hasn't been done before and this is the only way to get it that kind of presupposes that it hadn't been done before. Got it. Um, going back to something you said earlier, which is there is, you know, there is a chance that Congress could take this authority away if somebody screws it up somewhere along the line. There's probably a half dozen DOD acquisition executives who have said the exact same thing to me over the years. When you bring that up, are there specific ways that things could go sideways that you have in mind that you tell people to be careful about? Or is it more of a generalized fear? Uh, I mean, I have my opinions <laughs> right now. I think it's a generalized fear. Not that OTA is new because it's not. We know it goes all the way back to NASA and the space race, but it's more newly utilized since, again, we talked about the aperture of what could constitute a prototype was so opened up by Congress just um, a few years ago. But I do think that it's the fear of being the bad example. I, I speak regularly with some of the folks involved with the Oracle protests that the Army defended, and they did a great job. I mean, there was rules that came out of that decision that could not have been anticipated. And we're, we're kind of working in this ever-evolving area that things could change. And GAO or Court of Federal Claims or Congress could come up with something after we've already executed some of the different phases. So I do think there's that fear of the unknown because, you know, change is hard. And, and when there's not a lot of case law or decisions or rules that are finite to help us know where we can operate within our legal bounds, I do think it can be a little daunting um, in terms of my personal (laughs) opinions of what we can do to mitigate. Um, I think that, you know, there's some unknowns with fraud. There's some unknowns with waste, especially if we're talking the consortia model. And I'm by no means a critic or a fan. I'm neutral. Um, how do we know that a consortia is a, or consortium is allowing a lot of members like you know if there's three members only you have a one third chance of getting the award how do we know that that's not happening and and I don't think that that's a something that we really need to spend a lot of time being concerned with but are there kind of risk reduction me- measures that we should come up with to make sure that there's no you know bid rigging sort of aspects occurring um, for our competition. Talking with Hallie Balkin, Learning Director for Other Transactions at Defense Acquisition University about OTAs in the Defense Department. She's back with us for one more segment after one last break. This is on DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu. Back in just a minute. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, this is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. As we wrap up our conversation about other transaction agreements in the Defense Department with one of DoD's leading experts on OTAs, talking with Hallie Balkin, Learning Director for Other Transactions at Defense Acquisition University. And Hallie, as, as you said earlier, there are, there are no templates for how to do an OT, nor, nor should there be. 
there, there's a lot of ways in which these are different from a FAR-based contract. There, there are no sections of the OT regulation that you can go to to learn how to do a particular thing. So what resources are there out there for, for people who are considering using an OT who think it might be right for their requirement besides Ask Hallie? I mean, DAU is the best place to start. I will say that without the the notion of self-aggrandizing our our role here. But we are absolutely a resource that if we can't help you, we will connect you with the folks who can. We are working closely with various Army Contracting Command offices, the ACCs. We work very closely with Defense Innovation Unit, DIU. There's several Navy offices that I know personally that are doing incredible things utilizing OTA. Uh, The Air Force, AFWorks, there's so many different Air Force Agents, uh, offices doing really incredible things with the authority. And we want to be a conduit to help to get you in the right uh, place. There are webinars that we put on every single month that are also recorded. So if you miss one or can't make it, you can access them publicly. It's available to the public at large. So if you have a specific need and you want to scroll through what we have available, that's there um, at your leisure. And then there's also at OSD an OT guide, which is not a policy document. It is really just a guide. And I think you've been in, involved a bit in, in helping to update that, right? Yes. Our current guide uh, is the 2018 version, working very closely with SMEs across the government, as well as closely with DPC to update the guide. Uh, we anticipated it would be available this fall. Uh, so keep an eye out for that. Um, this document will also have more best practices and deeper areas such as auditing and types of um, cost structures and best practices throughout the document. So we're hoping it does provide a little more detail on how it could be done, again, without being prescriptive because there's no one way to do it. Since every requirement is different, there's no kind of thou shall do it this way because that's not what Congress wants and that's not the best way to use the authority. We want it to be open-ended and we want the authority to be used in the way that makes the most sense specific to the actual requirement. Yeah. Can you just say another word or two about what the document actually is, since it is not policy? And I want to keep harping on that. It is not policy. Um, What is it instead? (laughs) Yes, it's a best best practice document. It is a document that we want. Let's say you're a brand new contracting professional and you heard the, the acronym OTA and you want to use it, but you've never done it. Where do you start? It's a, it's a great starting place. It has the beginning to the end of what the process could look like. It has tips, um, language, suggested language that you couldn't use. It has other resources um, such as intellectual property. There's a cadre of intellectual property folks working together to create a new intellectual property guide. And this will refer you to, the new guide will refer you to that document. So you have a plethora of information to help you kind of digest and grapple with some of those concerns to make sure that our intellectual property and data rights are protected and, and utilized in the way that we need it to. Uh, but it's going to have information that sends you to different sections depending on your role. So there's going to be, like I mentioned, auditors. There's a lot of different auditors grappling with some of these OT considerations that we, and so we got some DCAA and DCMA folks involved with helping us rewrite the guide to put their best practices, their resources in. So it's hopefully will be more comprehensive uh, when it gets published. Let's talk just a little bit about why OTs are actually useful. I mean, it's it's really not just a mechanism to go fast. 
and reach out to non-traditionals. There were specific circumstances that led Congress to create this authority in the first place, having to do with where R&D is really done in this modern era. Can you, can you talk a bit about why, why they're useful in the first place? Yes, absolutely. So in the past, DOD really was the primary driver of technological innovation. And those R&D industrial bases really developed in government labs. And we're just not seeing that anymore. Right now, we're seeing the focus and the pace of science and technology and innovation and the leading technology areas really come from the commercial sector. So in order to maintain that technology advantage on the battlefield, we really need to rely and work with the commercial sector. DOD needs to remain attractive. So these private sector entities want to work with us. We need them. We need to rely on them so we can maintain that technological advance on the battlefield. And we need to posture ourselves so we are attractive as someone they actually will and want to continue to work with. Hallie Balkin is Learning Director for Other Transactions at Defense Acquisition University. Our guest this full hour to talk about OTAs in the Defense Department. We will post links to some of the resources DAU has available and that we've been talking about on how to use OTAs. We'll post that at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DOD. And if you missed any of our conversation this week, you can find our full show, as always, at that same website. We'll also post this week's program in our podcast feed. Subscribe to On DOD on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, or wherever you get your shows. That's it for this week's edition of On DoD. Thanks as always for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbu. So long. You've been listening to On DoD on Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.